0: Don't skip Kim and Phil with you exploring a destination with a very dark history, but it's beautiful without hordes of tourists, has unique architecture and is a playground for nature lovers. Where are we heading,
1: Phil? We're going to Poland, where the vodka is reportedly better than Russia's. And according to a a, a Swedish nomad blogger, travellers get value for money. Grocery stores, restaurants, public transport and all the activities are all cheaper than most other European countries. So let's find out more about
2: Poland. Welcome to the War Nomads podcast, delivered by War Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveller.
0: Now, Poland's history is very complicated. In this episode, we will touch on Russian and German occupation and the atrocities of World War II, but also celebrate a country emerging from its past or at least feel refusing to be defined by it. That's
1: right. We'll meet a man who went cycling with bison. Yes, I did say that. A writer who chats to us about tracing her family roots. And we discuss dark tourism. Plus much more.
0: Let's get into it with Joe, who says his middle name should have been Wanderlust, but his parents weren't that imaginative.
1: You're <laughs> <All> stupid.
0: <laughs> He's explored some off-the-beaten-paths uh, destinations in Poland, and in typical Kim and Phil fashion, we can't pronounce them.
1: <laughs> this is fun.
0: What are the names of the
1: places uh, Can I sh- have a shot? Yeah. Can I give it a go? Yeah, Phil yeah. will have a go, right? Uh, what do it? Ch- go ch- No.
0: Ah. I told you it
1: wouldn't be that. <laughs> what is it then?
3: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you are hopeless. <laughs> i
0: have got no chance. Okay, the second one. Do you want to have a crack at that? Uh, no, nah. I'll have a crack at this one then. Yeah. Um, zamosh.
1: Nah, go on.
0: Very close. Oh! Oh!
3: What is it? It's more of a t at the end. the the C or whatever accent they put on it. I forget its name. It's more of a KT sound. You know, it leaves a kind of t in the air without ever being really. Struck. So it's the mops. So it's, it's like a little, little kiss of a tea.
0: Oh, look, I don't care. I was just closer than Phil. So we're very competitive people. This is a really good slip into okay. this particular language that I can't pronounce, but it's Polish, Slavic, and Balkan all in one. Yes. Now, Polish is difficult enough, but you add those other two in. Where are we talking yep. about? What area of Poland?
3: So we're talking about. Um, the southwest. And we're talking about a biggish chunk of the southwest, but it might as well be nowhere. So the region we're talking about is the Podhale region, and it's mostly mountainous, or the foothills of the Tatras Mountains. And it's a place of deep mysteries. Every mountain path invites misadventure. It's really easy to get lost there. You know, the 21st century hasn't found it yet. It's as if no one can find it. It's too busy. I don't know wearing pigtails and milking goats. And its its version of Polish will leave most Polish dumbfounded. My attempts to come in with what I thought was big city Polish, they were laughed out of town, almost with a pitchfork. It's kind of embarrassing.
0: Can I ask, and when we were reading through your story, I said to Phil, um, it sounds very much like Austria or the Swiss Alps when you talk about fiddles and alpine horns and decorative yeah. axes and salted sheep's milk. Am I on the right track
3: again? Yeah, you're right. Except, of course, the Gorale, the people who live there, and there are Polish Gorale, there are Slovak Gorale. Apparently, there are even some Romanian. I don't know how that works, but. Either way, the Gorale are, they're a kind of law unto themselves, and they're also borders unto themselves. They don't really see Slovakia, Poland, um, the Czech Republic. What they see is a bunch of people much like them, who have held together culturally in the way that the Austrians have sold out. And so when we talk about the Alpine such and such, whether it be a, a meadow, pasture, or a horn, they call it the gorale. And so they'd expect any other Alpine people to refer to that kind of horn as a gorale horn. This is in chock <laughs>
1: No, something, I don't
0: know. <laughs> How'd you find yourself there?
3: Okay, so this is kind of interesting. Um The first um, gorale I met uh, was this boxer, um, amateur, not bad, more like a just a scrapper really. And he was sent to this gym in Chicago to kind of get the worst of his technique out of his system. Cause you know, it'd be headbutting people and boxers don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I met up with him and he explained who he was. And when people, when the Gorali talk about who they are, they talk about what they are, where they belong. He belonged to this Polish Highlanders association. Biggest one is in Chicago. And, um, the boxing gym I met him at was the one that Irvin Welsh, writer of train Trainspotting, used to go to. I'm not allowed to mention the name of it because he still goes there right. and he doesn't want to get mocked. Uh, but there was a big Gourale, you know, boxing population there. I think there was six or seven scrappers. And that's how I got introduced to it.
0: And you just decided that you'd go and visit?
3: Well, I, I, you know, my father's um, was Polish, um, well, kind of, my family, the Vorbias, the W-O-B-I-J, that's not how it was pronounced there or at the time, but, you know, border guards have tin ears and bad spelling. And so I ended up with this W-O-B-I-J surname. I didn't get on with, well with my father, but I was curious about the gene pool. I thought there might be someone nicer than him out there. <laughs> so I, I headed to Poland.
0: So your father that was Jewish-Polish?
3: Yes, that's right. Uh, The family was kind of what I would call trans-East European. Like a lot of the Jews at the time, they were kind of kept on the move. Um, They didn't really get to settle anywhere. But the bulk of the family were in Poland, yeah. And sadly, um, met the end that most of the Polish Jews did.
1: During the uh, Second World War. There's a uh, fellow that used to work for us here at World Nomads who is of Polish ancestry as well. And that whole, um, you know, Nazi uh, occupation and that whole period there, which was absolutely brutal to the Polish people, still absolutely. after all these years still has an effect on the, on the psyche and the, and, the, and the way the people in the country operate.
0: Yeah? We will hear more about that actually as we um, venture deeper into the podcast. But did
1: you, you you know, like that was your experience there too?
3: Well, entirely. I mean, you've got a a sort of country of two halves. The uh, metropolitan areas are trying to move on as best they can, and you'll find that right across all um, once Nazi-occupied and then Soviet-occupied territories. And the really sad thing for Poland, and you could say the same about the Baltics, so Latvia, Lithuania, less so Estonia, is um, they welcomed the Nazis because they were suffering under the Soviets. And then they learned to hate both, by which time it's too late. So history has been very unkind to the Polish whilst they suffered both ends of it. And it's wrestling with that more than anything else. What do you do when you're under that kind of yoke, you know?
0: As I said, we'll explore that further okay. um, as let's we get, get into the, the podcast. Right. Yeah, let's get back up the yeah. mountain. Uh, no, but what I wanted to to ask you in closing, despite that history, and we are going to touch on dark tourism
3: as well, yep.
0: why else okay. would someone, a world nomad, want to visit Poland?
3: Uh, because it's endlessly fascinating. Um, more so than Germany, really, if you want a sense of where... The country's been and where it's going to, you would go to Poland. It is putting on weight, putting on putting on proper timber in terms of its economic health. I mean, all of the polls, Brexit is an issue, of course, in the UK, but all of the polls I know that have done all right in the UK are heading back. They're reinvesting in their own country. There's an enormous skill base there, which most other countries have benefited from. And now is perking up economically. People are going back, you know, with a little more cash in their pockets and to a country that can um, enormously benefit from them. It's always good to see some cause for optimism. You know, Europe's licking its wounds still in various different places now. Um, But to go to Poland is to see a place that is really on the up. And that's no kind of, you know, propaganda version. It's really on the up in that it's bringing its, its people back um, and everyone's holding hands. It's kind of interesting.
0: Anthea is a writer based in the UK, but she travels the world in search of stories and she went to Poland to trace her family history in a city that, again, I can't pronounce. <laughs> well, the funny thing is my father, who
4: was born in England, so he never went there, but he used to say to me, our people came from Lodge, and I always thought it was pronounced Lodge. And it wasn't until I met somebody from there who said, you know, it's wood." No, I had no idea.
0: So it's spelled L-O-D-Z or Zed. Z. Uh, but
4: you but... pronounced it as if it was spelled W-O-O-D-G-E. So tell us about this place. Well, um, it was a place that rural Polish peasants thought was paved with gold because there were textile factories there And there was this um, endless demand for labour and people just flocked in there and thought they were going to make their fortune. But in fact, they were working for slave wages and living in tenements and working in sweatshops. So it was a bit grim, but there was work and maybe there wasn't work where they came from. And there um, there was already a textile factory there, actually with better conditions, but then um, the When the Jew, Jewish Poles came in, a separate one was built um, by um, a Jewish Polish magnate, and he didn't look after them so well and didn't build them special housing. so they just lived in tenements really. And the worst of it is he built a huge mansion for himself, which adjoins the factory. And so they would have been looking at his mansion when they when they came out. It's now a boutique hotel, but it has all its factory structure intact and some of the machines. So you still have that feeling of, of what it was like, except it's quite chic now and you... You know, sleep there. It's a boutique hotel. It's called Manufactura.
0: See, I love that um, places are hanging on to their history and doing things like, rather than bulldozing, uh, places like that, they're embracing it. But this was a place where your great-grandparents lived, and as you've just explained, it it was pretty grim.
4: Yeah, yeah. So they lived in a proper neighbourhood. They didn't live, it wasn't like factory housing, so the neighbourhood was just down the road. And I had addresses because... um, One of my cousins is a genealogist and he had um, found, there are very good records kept in Poland, actually, of where people are buried and uh, where they lived, you know, from censuses. So I was able to go and find the address that my great-grandmother had lived at.
0: And it wasn't pretty, you explaining your story.
4: Yeah, the the building uh, was kind of, it was still standing, but it was quite derelict. But the worst of it is, is that it overlooked what looks now like quite a, a pretty little park, um, which used to be a market square. But in World War II, it became a place of public execution um, because there was this huge ghetto in Łódź. It was the second one after the Warsaw Ghetto. And a whole lot of Jews from all over Europe were kind of herded into it before being shipped out to the camps. Um, So there was this dark side that I never knew about and hadn't expected to find out about, but um, I went on a, tour, a walking tour with, with a historian who specialised in that. And, you know, he, t- he took us everywhere. You know, he didn't uh, just try and show the pretty parts.
0: So. You also say that it's not promoted as, as a tourist site? No, it's
4: not hidden either. And there's this special station which was completely unexpected. And it was a station which really wasn't in use. It probably would have, was once a cargo Line or freight station, a small station, and the Nazis completely appropriated it to ship off Jews. And what they did at first, they didn't take them very far. They took them a few miles down the line, and then just shot them all in the train. Before they started, they stopped shooting, you know, because they, it was getting too expensive. So then they started sending them to camps and gassing them. So there is this station which is an amazing museum. I wasn't expecting to see any of this stuff. There's an actual cattle truck, one of those cattle truck trains, an actual one, which is on the platform. So that was quite grim. And then in the waiting room, there are all these documentations. The Nazis were so pedantic that even though they were committing war crimes, they were writing down everybody's name, everything, every detail of who they killed when was all written down and they retrieved everything off the bodies, you know, buttons, jewellery, everything. And um, there are these display cases in the waiting room, and all this stuff is in them. So it's, it's intense, it's very moving, and it was quite unexpected. I didn't expect to see any of this. You know, I'm not going to any concentration camps, and I probably might not have gone to the station, but by the time I found out what was there, I was there. And in a sense... It is a place of pilgrimage. You do see um, there were some groups there of American Jews and Israeli Jews. I guess probably there's probably a Jewish tourism industry in Poland. People do want to go to these places who had ancestors there. So, you know, it's part of your heritage. So there is a demand for it. Anyway, I was glad in the end that I saw it. I was very glad that my great-grandmother left for England before she saw any of that. So...
0: So such a grim history, but then you round off your article saying, uh, you know, it's now celebrated.
4: It's completely reinvented itself because, you know, all the mills stopped production, you know. Uh, I can't quite remember why, but the mills went out of business around the turn of the 20th century and it reinvented itself. It's the filmmaking capital of Poland. There's a film school there. There are studios there. It has this very long thoroughfare, which is about three miles long, 5K, lined with restaurants and cafes, and it has street art. There's a lot going on there. It's a very vibrant place to spend a few days. You could go there and you would never know about the dark side. And it also has a new museum, a new science museum. It has a beautiful new station. It's gorgeous station, the main station, very easy to reach from Warsaw hour and 20 minutes um and it's um it's a delightful place to visit actually
0: phil it was at this point that anthea passes me on to her son's girlfriend natalie whose family also has polish roots
5: um although my grandparents were not jewish we were catholic a catholic family um actually both of my grandmothers were taken by the nazis and taken to uh like forced labor camps uh during world war ii um, so that was something very interesting because a lot of people don't really realize that um, not only were the Jews taken during World War II, but just Polish citizens as well. Um, do you find in Poland that there is that dark history that
0: attracts travelers?
5: I definitely think so. Yeah, and especially Auschwitz. Um, I was in Krakow this past summer and we were debating whether to go. We had a few extra days, but I just wasn't, I don't think I was an emotionally in the right right place to go to it. Um, I think you really need to prepare yourself, but I do think a lot of people, when they do go, that is one of the main attractions they do want to uh, visit, one in town. They actually just opened a new museum in uh, the town square in Krakow because during some renovations, they started doing some... digging up of the town square to, you know, replace the pipes and things. And they actually found the old structure of the old town dating back to the Byzantine Empire, right under like Krakow's main square. And no one knew it was there, but now it's something so important, uh, you know, kind of explains how the town and went through the changes throughout the years. Even when I talked to my grandmothers about it, they, it was kind of strange because, you know, they didn't really put like such a dark light onto it. You know, of course it was a tragic event, but they, they were mostly just talking about how they were treated actually very well on these forced labor camps. Um, you know, you know they weren't raped or beaten or, you know, treated badly. They were actually taken people there actually took care of them pretty well, but, um, it was just a tragic situation. My grandmother, um, specifically she was um, in church on a Sunday and that's when the Nazis came in and, uh, took her and her sister. They didn't take her father or anything, But um, after they were released and sent back to their town, um, the story was just a little bit different. You know, the town was destroyed and her father was killed by the Nazis during that time. So when they came back, they just came back to essentially nothing. You know, they were 14, 15 years old and they kind of just had to readjust how their lives would be. And I asked them, you know, how did you make money to support yourself yourselves? Because, you know, they didn't make it through high school and they didn't really have any trade to go into. Um, so they said they actually wove uh, baskets to make money to kind of support themselves.
0: See, I would have thought, as a, as a, you know, Catholics, that it would have been to leave the country. But not so. Mm -hmm.
5: My family was very poor, so maybe those opportunities weren't really presented um, at the time. And a lot of people in Poland, you know, they were very loyal to their country and they didn't want to leave, even though things were so bad. They kind of wanted to stay and protect themselves. Um, I'm sure a lot of people did leave, but even when I went back this time, A lot of the villages kind of did seem abandoned. And I asked my father about that because I don't really remember it being like that the last time I was there. And he said, you know, now that um, Poland is part of the EU, a lot of people have more opportunities and it's easier for them to travel throughout Europe and get different kinds of jobs. But I don't think a lot of people had those opportunities, especially since Poland, you know, um, under like the communistic rule, life was just very tough.
0: You obviously, or your grandparents haven't let that moment in history define them, but Mm -hmm. um, I'm guessing, you know, talking to you in 2019, ticking over into 2020, it's still very Mm -hmm. much a conversation within your family.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And this uh, past trip was just very interesting because I was always interested in seeing how my parents dealt through it during that time. And, you know, They said it was was a very tough life, you know. They didn't have the opportunities a lot of other countries in Europe did have during that time. So even my parents um, in the 80s, they decided to essentially give up their polar citizenship in exchange for the opportunity to be able to go to Germany. Um, So they both moved to Hamburg, Germany and uh, lived there for a while. And then eventually even Germany wasn't that great. Um, So they decided they wanted to move to America to give their children kind of a better opportunity at life and a little bit of an easier life than what they had experienced during their childhood and growing up.
0: You said it's part of the EU now. Obviously, we know that. And um, it's opened as a destination. What would you say to people that are considering traveling there? What, What would they get out of Poland?
5: It's a very beautiful country. I think a lot of people are definitely surprised by it. Because you have the beautiful countrysides, which are very you know well upkept, a lot of farming, and still a lot of people like um, providing for themselves um, using farming techniques because they do want to keep that healthy lifestyle. But the people are so nice, they're so giving, and they're so willing to help anyone. Um, and then in the big towns, I think there's just so much history um, that can be learned about, and um, I think people are really drawn to that. And also the um, just the architecture. Um, It was beautiful in itself. So, Kim,
4: I was in Warsaw, and maybe somebody else has told you this. It was a complete surprise to me, first of all, that it had been entirely destroyed by the Nazis, and secondly, that it has been completely reconstructed as it was in the 18th century. And you would never know. It looks original. It's been so beautifully done.
0: So who poured the money into resurrecting
4: Warsaw? Somehow the, the Poles did it themselves. I mean, they were under Russian rule, but I think that I don't think the, uh, the Russians gave them the money. I think they just were determined. I think there are probably some unhappy people in other towns that they took bricks from. And building materials, you know, I I think there was a bit of that going on. But nevertheless, they've done the most amazing job. I've never seen anything like it.
0: Well, thank you for that, ladies. And I think now would be a really good time to bring in our managing editor, who we've heard on the podcast before, Kate Duthie, who wrote a really popular article on dark tourism. But is visiting some of those places that um, we heard the, the girls talk about or the ladies talk about, Krakow as an example, the concentration camp, is that considered dark tourism? Yeah, what I think is it, it is.
6: Yeah, I think dark tourism is defined as visiting places where I guess there are atrocities as opposed to what you might call war tourism when you visit war graves. So it could be anything from the 9-11 memorial to Auschwitz to the gravesite in Srebrenica in Serbia. So it's that kind of thing. So it's places where you're going really to to observe a place where something terrible happened.
1: But, I mean, there is a – I mean, there's even a phrase for it, morbid fascination, isn't that? Is, yeah. Is, is that what it's about? You know, i just kind of No wondering. different to
0: reading books on those topics. Yeah, I know. Well, I guess it's what
6: – I think it depends on your intent. I think for some people going to Auschwitz and that kind of thing is ticking off a list of places they want to go to yeah. just so they can say that they've been there. But I think if your intent is to visit it, to, to feel something and to – um, respect what happened there and hopefully to learn from it, then I think that's okay. I mean, there have been news reports of people uh, at Auschwitz, mm. you know, giving the victory symbol or smiling or doing selfies in front of the sign that everybody walked under to go mm. in. And I think it was earlier this year there were news reports of guys with a uh, blow-up sex doll at the 9-11 memorial.
0: What? Really? What goes through somebody's yeah.
6: head? So, I mean, they're, they're there for a completely different reason, aren't they? I mean, they're not there with that intent and I think if your intent is to go to Cambodia to the Killing Fields because you want to stand there and remember the horrors of an event um, I think there's probably some value in that but I think if you're just going there because it's a tour you saw on a travel agent list and you're not really sure why you're going, then you probably shouldn't go. I mean, it's a different, it's a difficult thing to say whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, yeah. um, and I think if you go back in history, you could argue that there's a statute of limitations on what makes it dark tourism and what just makes it history. So if you went to the Tower of London where people were tortured and had their heads chopped off, as a visitor there, you wouldn't feel that you had to be particularly reverential. you just think this is a fascinating London tourist attraction.
1: How can you tell if you've crossed the line?
6: I suppose... You know, there's a time and a place for selfies and and giving the victory symbol and that's at the beach or, you know, in front of the Eiffel Tower, but it's not in front of an archway that is famous for all the people getting off the trains and walking into Auschwitz.
0: We know people want to do it and your article, Dark Tourism, has been immensely popular. What's the (laughs) feedback been like? Are people for Dark
6: Tourism? Well, some people were surprised at the terminology and had said, I visited these places, I, I wouldn't regard myself as a dark tourist. It's possible that that's a, you know, it's a new kind of phrase. But I think people have been going to places like the Bridge on the River Kwai and all sorts of places like that where a number of people were treated badly by other people because they're fascinated by the story of it.
0: So summing up, it's uh, you would believe it's what your intent
6: is. Yeah, I think if your intention is to learn something about, the world, about the history, about things that we don't want to repeat, and perhaps learn something about yourself and your response to that, then then it's important to go to those places. And I think for a lot of places where there have been atrocities, people haven't gone there for a long time. And this could help, you know, communities get back on their feet with that kind of tourism.
0: Thank you very much for that, Kate. We'll share that article in show notes. So cheers. Thank you. It's also on Facebook in the World Nomads podcast group. Look for that where you can have your say on dark tourism and share some of the places perhaps that you've visited. Phil,
1: what's your travel news? Uh, Our friends at Atlas Obscura, that's the online magazine and travel company, are giving away an incredible trip for two to Turkmenistan and the Gates of Hell. Do you know what the Gates of Hell is?
0: Uh, well, I didn't until Until you sh- we
1: looked at that pit. That's that massive sort of hole in the ground in the in the middle of outback Turkmenistan where you can see all the magma and lava and what have you. It's like looking down into the core of the planet.
0: It is amazing. So as part of this um, giveaway, you get to see that. Yeah. You get to see an underwater lake. Yes. Uh, mosques. Like the, the, the What about the horses?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. The oldest horse breed in the world as well. They've still got a long face. <laughs>
0: <laughs> sorry. What you did point out to me is that it's very difficult to travel independently in that's Turkmenistan. Right.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's it's really difficult to do so. You know, that's why Atlas Obscura have put together the package that's the one that you can win. So we'll have a link to enter and all the details on the prize. In our show notes, a bit of other travel news for you. In Australia, Uluru or Ayers Rock is the name given to it by white settlers. That's the big red rock right in the middle of Australia. Iconic. It's in the news because the Indigenous owners have put a ban on climbing it. It's a sacred site. It makes sense. I can't believe that the ban hasn't been in place for a while. So, but rather than just like slap the ban on and say, you can't climb anymore, they've actually put a date on and say, you know, after this time, don't, please don't climb uh, Uluru. And guess what's happened? Everyone Thousands of climbing. people have turned up to make sure they can get a climb in before it's banned. Okay. Um, a travelling doctor has given some advice on ways to stay healthy while you're uh, globe trotting. my. Um, <laughs> A couple of his top tips. I like this one. You know, when you get check into a hotel and they give you the room key inside a little wallet. Yeah. Yeah. Leave the little wallet in the room because it's got the room number on it. So if you, you lose that, somebody knows which room to go to and nick all your stuff. So, oh, right. To so get rid of the bit of cardboard, just take the card with you. And the other one is he, he suggests is never sleep naked. Now, when I first read this, I thought it might be it might be about you know. The sheets and germs or whatever. Now it's if there's a fire and you've got to get out of the room. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, look, go. I'm going to say I'm not a nude. Sw- I am not a nude sleeper. You, Phil?
1: <laughs> Thanks for the mental image. <laughs> 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 no, I'm not either. Okay. So. Okay. <laughs> That just, oh, everybody's God. just throwing up a little <laughs> bit in their mouths. All
0: right, let's get back to <laughs> let's Poland move on. then. Now, Steve explored one of Europe's last primeval forests, and I'm going to have a go at pronouncing this place in okay. which he went biking with bison, Balviska.
2: Yeah, that's pretty good. That is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> well, have you, have you been like, no, you try it first. No, 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 you try yes, it first. Totally, yes, totally. Literally,
0: that's how it's, we kick the podcast off.
1: Yeah, it's a bit of a theme with us as well. We're absolutely hopeless at
2: pronunciations.
0: So. Yeah, hopeless, hopeless, hopeless. So tell us, in this village, a Polish village, um, and...
2: Well, fair enough with Polish, right? I mean, there's, <laughs> there's some pretty unusual...
0: Mm, no, it doesn't even have to be that unusual. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay. Uh,
0: just biking with bison. Now they're huge animals, aren't they?
2: They are. Yes. How big? Um, Describe one. Uh, well, certainly larger than than pretty much any any um, any cow, any domestic cow. Um, the the European bison is similar in weight, a little bit less heavy than the American bison. Uh, they stand a fraction taller but they're, they're slight, they're not quite as chunky, uh, but they're still really big animals, yeah, so you're you Know, sort of head height to a man, pretty much, um, well, to, at the shoulder.
0: If you're six foot five, you are,
2: yeah. <laughs>
1: well, <laughs> yeah, you stack two kims one on top of the other to reach that one, but there you go. I, I wasn't aware yeah. that European bison was, you know, even existed, and they almost didn't, they were almost, you know, totally wiped out.
2: Yeah, so they go back way, way, way back. There, there were precursor species, uh, there's an animal called the oryx, which was even larger. And then there were a series of different bison species, which, which are extinct, uh, and begat the, the one that we have today. Um, and it very nearly did vanish, yes. It, it, was, it remained only in those mountain fastnesses, those, uh, those distant eastern forests where they were hard to reach. There's always been interest in hunting them. And so in Poland in particular, in Bialwyska, the the protected area there is there now has long been protected, and formerly was protected for the purposes of royal hunting. Therefore, they would keep the species alive for sport. Um, and that was the, in the end, that was pretty much, with one or two other small pockets of, of um, survivors, pretty much the, the way that the animal was brought back to the level of population it has today.
1: Yes, and what I find fascinating about that is the program of, and I love the word, rewilding.
2: Which is quite a uh, controversial uh, idea to try and put back what we've removed. Um, so what's going on in Bialwyska is, um, again, an artificial situation created by the, by the uh, remnants of the, the herd from the hunting reserve, now expanded. But the, the park does connect with the protected areas on the Belarus side of the border as well. And there are more buffalo there too. And so the feeling is, again, that they have sufficient range that they can usually find enough to eat whether they have to wander back and forth over the border or wherever they need to go. So it does seem to be a successful and manageable situation. Um, And they're also exposed to predators as well, so there is the natural controls there.
1: This is the area you're in, and this is, you know, the population that you've come to see, and as you write for us for World Nomads as well, it's quite quite an ethereal experience.
2: Yes, well, my... They, they are quite elusive. They like to hide in, in the trees. So actually, some of these ancient buffalo species are more likely to be in the forest than in the grassland. These guys in particular, they, they seem to like inhabit the spruce forest. And then early in the morning, they venture out into the grassland to see what they can snack on. But it is an early morning thing. And so you have to rise early. Um, so I was up before dawn, get out on the bike, pedal out there. And you're sort of, you know, standing there in the, the pooling mist. Uh, it's pretty bloody cold, but it's beautiful um, with all the birds in the, in the meadow uh, waking up. And, uh, and then with a bit of luck, you get to see stood in the right place. You get to see the buffalo slowly slide out from amid the trees and, and come out into the, into the, the grassland.
0: When you say they're looking for something to eat, is it like a bear like you'll do? Um,
2: <laughs> are they vegetarian? No, not, yeah.
0: Are they vegetarian? Yeah, really yeah, yeah the,
2: the herbivores. Yeah, right. the herbivores. Okay, okay. But, but I guess that there's a mix of species they like to eat. Uh, when the, Joanna, the guide, when we were in the forest, she was talking about them uh, liking, liking to eat the herbs. I think you know she means by that various smaller plants that they find amongst the trees. And there's a mix of different species, of course, out in amongst the grass. And so they, they come out to add to their diet a bit of variety.
1: It's a remote area, but it's not that difficult to get to. And the people that you encountered there?
2: Yeah. I mean, the of course, the people I spent most time with were the were the park guides. They're, they're somewhat used to tourists in that area. You know, there was a fair amount of English spoken. There's no surprise. There's not a kind of, oh, wow, you're from such and such. It, it was more, um, you know, business-like and... Um, they recognise the importance of the, the park and the animals to to generate revenue for that area.
0: Okay, when's the best time to go and how would you get there?
2: Uh, you'd, you'd get into Bialystok, which is the the biggest city on that side of Poland. Um, I took a train from Warsaw. The best time would be um, spring and autumn, when there's uh, sp- particularly spring when you've got the fresh growth. The grass is full of, uh, of young shoots and so particularly rich for the for the buffalo to come graze grazing and it's beautiful in the early morning then you've just got to take a warm jacket because it could be close to freezing or even below freezing for the first couple of hours
1: thanks Steven, and congratulations kim on winning this episode's round of can we pronounce that <laughs>
0: I was good, actually. (laughs) Gracious in defeat. Thank you, Phil. A reminder, you can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at worldnomads.com. When we return next week, we've got a special episode featuring UK teacher Zoe. She was badly burned when an illegal petrol station exploded in Cambodia. Yeah,
1: don't miss that episode. It's fantastic. Bye. Bye. The World Nomads Podcast. Explore your boundaries.